and welcome to the Doctor Who Show. I'm Dave. And I'm Rob. And we're about to review, for your edification and delight, the Eaters of Light. <laughs> yes, we are. How are you, Rob? I'm not too bad at all, Dave. These uh, winter days are getting me down a bit at times. You know, you wake up and your feet are cold and your hands are cold and it's just cold. And by cold, you know, our days top out around 20 degrees, so the, the palms are probably thinking, what on earth are you talking about? But it's cold. <laughs> It, it is cold. It uh, was was nicely atmospheric for watching this particular episode. I felt Scottish <laughs> as, as I curled up under the doona watching this episode. Did you have some shortbread or something to hand, or you know? Oh, Scotch no! Egg? I should have. I should have. I should have. Now I think about it. <laughs> it would have been nice. Uh, yes. Well, we have watched it, and I guess we've got a word of the week in mind. Who who should go first? Who should unveil their word of the week this week? <sighs> Uh, I'm going to ask you to. Okay, I'm quite happy to say my word of the week is snug. Ooh, my word of the week is keystone. Okie dokie. Shall we get into it? Let's get into it. I guess the first thing to say is, Dave, did you like it? I liked it. I really liked it, actually. That's a like, not a love. That's the first thing I'm picking up on. No, no, it's uh, I, I'll, I'll be effusive. I thought this was a really good episode of Doctor Who. I loved it in many, many ways. It was well-written. It had some good performances. It looked wonderful. It felt good. Uh, to me, this is what Doctor Who should be. I really, really liked, if not loved, this episode. Good Lord, I think you're cribbing from my notes again. Uh, as our listeners know, we don't talk before these episodes, but I could say basically the same thing. This is very Doctor Who to me. I really enjoyed it. And it sounds like we're going to be both pretty effusive about it as we proceed here. Uh, look, I think so, and that can only be a good thing for the series. So let, let me say, I spent this week anticipating this episode probably more than I've anticipated an episode in quite a few years. Because as we said last week, this to me sort of had that perfect combination Rona Munro wrote my favourite episode of 1980s Doctor Who. I think Survival is a wonderful story, and a large part of that comes down to her script. I think that Scotland is a wonderful country. It's somewhere that it's one of the few places outside of Australia I could I could happily live. Mm. And I think it's a beautiful country, so I love the setting. And Rob, you and I are both you know students of history and oh, lovers yes. of history. So to have Rona Munro write a historical in Scotland. To me, I sort of spent the week you know, really excited and then trying to temper it down because you don't want to, you don't want to have, you know, it doesn't quite meet expectations and everything. But I, I watched this and from the opening scene, that wonderful opening shot that, uh, you know, over the village in, in Scotland and the the, the, the stones and the, the children and then the, the mystery and the crow and mm-hmm. it was just such a wonderfully put together little cold open and I thought, we're going to be in for something good this week. Yes, yes. Look, well said. I, again, I feel much the same. First returning classic series writer. I mean, we've had a classic series director return. Uh, that That's old hat, but an actual writer, you know, gosh, TV used to be so different back then. What's it going to be like? You know, oh, wow. It's tucked away at the end of the series, you know, just before the finale, but, you know, right right at the back of all these stories. Does that say something about its quality? Ugh, I don't know. I've had all these thoughts running through my head. I have tried to temper it down a bit and just, just try not to think about it at all basically and uh i'm I'm glad i'm glad i did that because it just let me go in fresh and the episode surprised and delighted that said i do have a few things in my notes and i don't know if you do too that that can pick at it a little as much as i liked it there are a few things to pick on do you have anything to pick on oh look there are certainly a few minor points that i think we can explore as we go through it and you know i've certainly got a foul of the week and a few little points, but I, I guess it's important to make the point. If I wasn't reviewing this episode for a podcast, I would have just sat down, absorbed it, loved it, and moved on with my life without even worrying about its faults. Mm, that's fair. I'm going to bring up one of those faults now because it's fairly broad and it, it went all the way through the episode. And that was a commentary on the nature of empire, which I felt was a bit heavy handed. Mm hmm. 
I guess that's in keeping with a lot of messages in this series being heavy-handed about capitalism and companies and awful people. And, ah, you know, there seem to be so many messages this series. And I just want to say, Dave, and, and you can jump in any time, the reality was the Romans conquered, yes, but they generally had a very light touch. They let people keep their religions, their leaders. They, they certainly went in and said, look, we're going to be in charge. <laughs> you know, yep. make no mistake about that. But it was only when people fought back that they got a bit ruthless. Here it was kind of like, oh, we're just farmers, you know, and they're taking over. It's not It's not so good. It's like, mm, that's kind of playing with history a bit. Because the Celts certainly did fight back, and that's why the Romans, you know, built Hadrian's Wall and did fight that's with right. them and, and so on. You know, it wasn't as one-sided as perhaps bits of this episode portrayed. Yeah, no, I, look, I thought that line about, you know, they create desert and call it peace, I thought was a bit over the top. And I was almost waiting for John Cleese to jump out from the side and go, yeah, what have the Romans ever done for us? <laughs> apart apart from the medicine and the aqueducts and the roads. And, and the underfloor heating and so on, yeah. Yeah, look, of all the empires that you could have been conquered by in the last 4,000 years of human civilization, uh, the Romans would certainly be one that I would be happy with and quite a number of others let me say that and and you're absolutely right i mean you look at their conquest of the middle east i mean you know local jewish kings maintained their rule over parts of judea etc mm. as long as they swore fealty to the roman empire and the romans did build and they did develop civilization and many of their laws were for you know 2 to 2500 years ago actually quite um humane yeah absolutely you know, they'd roll into town, they'd maybe fight a battle or two, they'd show off their technology, but if if the country or the province they were in said, okay, you're pretty good, come in, they were allowed to pretty much live life as they had normally or always lived it. So, yeah, there were a lot worse conquerors in history. So it, it got a little iffy for me, just this commentary on the nature of empire, which has popped up in earlier episodes as well. I don't know whether that's a Moffat thing he's trying to squeeze in there. It just seems more than coincidental that it's popped up a few times. Yeah, look, it, it does, and it, it is something I noted. But I guess at the same time, Scotland was the area that never gave in to the Romans and where eventually the Romans have gone, you know what, there's nothing there worth this amount of trouble. Let's just build a wall and keep them on the other side and we'll go about our business. And we'll call that the northern border of the empire and just forget about Scotland. Yes, exactly. I've also got some notes about the reality of the Legio Nona Hispana, or the Spanish Ninth Legion, but maybe we'll save that for a bit later. So if we're talking about uh, themes of the season, did you think that the monster in this counted as just an outright monster, or is this another example of a creature just living its life and it happens to be evil when it interacts with us? I think it very much has to be the latter, but that's just what we're inferring from it. It wasn't sort of overtly said at any time that that was the case, at least as far as I recall. These are our hot takes after all, listeners. We, mm -hmm. I've only seen it the once just a little while ago. But yes, that, that did seem to be the case to me. Um, they're just doing what they do. We have to stop that, otherwise they'll eat our son, uh, which doesn't sound so great. But yeah, I don't think they're particularly evil. No, I, I tend to agree with you that if we're looking at it in terms of that sort of thread across the season, it does fit in but by the same token it was effectively an irredeemable monster i mean the doctor wasn't able to reason with it he wasn't able to reset it he wasn't able to do a deal there, there, there was a uh, an inability to compromise the monster was bad in terms of its not necessarily its motivations but in terms of its effects mm -hmm. and so there, there did need to be that absolute uh, outcome of it's a monster we've got to get it out of our world all of that said, I couldn't quite get a, a firm grasp on it, though. Like, there was this line that, oh, it's it's been dying, it's about to die, but then it ate a lot of Romans. But then it didn't really become super powerful or anything. I thought, oh, maybe that recharges it, perhaps. But if you ate a whole legion of Romans, you'd think it would become very powerful, but it just seemed to be a, a bog-standard sort of monster getting around in the shadows. <laughs> then I couldn't understand why when that portal opened, all the monsters just didn't come out. I don't know, did it seem... Maybe if I go back and watch it again, it'll make a little more sense. But on first viewing, did it did it seem just a little unexplained to you, parts of the monster? Uh, look, it did, but I took that as a case of the Doctor and the others not knowing the answer and sort of trying to guess what was going on as it happened. And as the Doctor got more evidence, his theories uh, became more concrete. Okay. 
at first he just thinks that it's a, a wounded creature that's come through and it's eating people to to get more power, but then he realizes the connection it has between it and light. And I, I took it to sort of be that during the night time, uh, there was no light for it to eat, so it sort of got weaker and starved a bit, and then it had to eat people to get it through the night, and then it got to the daytime and the sun came and it had lots of light to eat, and that, that was kind of where I was coming from. Mm. Um, and, I, and I took the inconsistencies down to the fact the Doctor was working this through, and he wasn't just going, oh, look at that, that means that it's a raven snarl beast from 40 <laughs> you know the arterian galaxy and therefore yeah he was like going I, I, look it's come from this dimension i don't know what it wants um here's my guess okay i've got more evidence here's my my more educated guess and yes it was inconsistent but i thought it was realistically so and i think they did say outright that only one creature could come through the hell mouth at one time well that's convenient yeah and, and that was why uh, <laughs> that was why the gatekeeper was able to sort of maintain that gate as long as they could keep the first one at the gate the others couldn't come out right so it, it, it is a bit like the hellmouth in buffy where you know only one monster comes through at a time it's a nice plot conceit but i'd rather have the line in there as a conceit than not have it in there and it'd be a plot hole mm, okay visually i thought it was very well done uh particularly when it was just the tentacles those lit up tentacles i thought that looked very good i actually wondered whether in some scenes they weren't even cgi but whether they had a physical effect there of like some lit up tentacles that they were sort of pushing Mm. around a corner perhaps because they looked very very good it was less impressive though when we saw it outside of the shadows in a bit more daylight it looked very cg it looked a little off to me yeah, look, that's that's very true. I, I agree with you that it definitely looked like a CGI creation. There, were, there was no sort of sense of this being a real creature, and uh, that's okay. It's a special effect, and, you know, we, we've spent our whole lives excusing Doctor Who special effects. Why stop now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I did think, though, that even given that, the design worked well. You know, it wasn't a case of you saw the tentacles and you think, oh, what's this? Oh, this is really interesting, and... Then you saw the whole creature and you think, oh, that looks a bit naff. I, I, I saw the whole creature and how the tentacles fitted in there. I thought, yeah, that's a really natural, cool design. I, I buy that as a creature. Yes, it's CGI, but, you know, if it wasn't CGI, it would be a puppet or a, an animatronic, you know, creation or something. It's not going to be a real creature. So I thought the design worked well. All right. Shall we move into our cast now? Because I want to talk about the Doctor. I always want to talk about the Doctor, it seems, in these audios. In fact, last week I think I was talking about the Doctor before we even talked about the plot. Well, well, the show is called Doctor Who, so I think it's like that's fair enough. <laughs> true, true. Dave, I think we got a different shade of Doctor this week, a different shade of Doctor, one that we haven't even seen before. Now, I don't know if it was just knowing who the writer was, but at times I felt like I was watching McCoy or Colin Baker because he was being an ass and he was being sarcastic, but it wasn't in a Series 8 way at all. Did you sense this? He, he, it wasn't that he was so different that I was thinking, oh, who is this supposed to be? Is this actually the Doctor? But he felt very different to the Capaldi Doctor in any other episode I've seen, and it probably started with the arguing with Bill at the start of the episode. What are your thoughts? I really liked the Doctor in this. I actually thought we had a good distillation of the best of the Capaldi Doctor. And and I think we have seen this before. I think this is the balanced Doctor that we've seen in other episodes, particularly uh, in parts of this season and last season. Uh, I really liked the way that he was uh, sardonic and grumpy without ever being nasty. I think that's when Capaldi's at his best. Mm. Uh, He had some really good lines in there. The line about the Wi-Fi password... Uh, was really good. The way that he got away from the villagers was really good. Or well, how about, what are you going to do, throw your action figures at them? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, stuff stuff like that. I thought he had some really good, quite biting lines, but they weren't nasty lines. And it really made me feel like the Doctor, or the, um, the one about that's the sound of my patients finally snapping. Mm. Uh, I really liked that. And I liked the way that, you know, he's sitting there surrounded by Picts with spears and he's sort of, you know, listening to them rant for a bit and then he goes no i'm bored with this and just steps out of the circle and starts asserting his authority in the way the doctor can and does now I, I like the way that he just sort of played it out and said no no i'm bored with this now steps up let's let, let, let me take control of this yeah and, and the lack of meanness is why i say it definitely wasn't a series eight way that he was yeah. doing this but even in this series so far he's had the odd spiky or barbed line but they've been sort of one-offs 
uh, here it was almost like throughout the episode started arguing with Bill and then throughout the episode every time he was talking to someone he was just <laughs> He was just on them like he got up on the wrong side of bed. And that's why it felt a little different to me. It felt a little, not heavy-handed, but just a little more... Um... Could it could it be because Rodamon Rowe is a wittier writer than some of the others we've had? It could be, yeah. And that she's very good at that sort of wittier and more biting sense of humour. Yeah, look, it could be. But I was definitely sensing that this felt different to me in some way. It was a different shade of Doctor. Okay, did did you like it? I did. It it, it took me aback in some ways, but I, I did actually like it. And by the end, I was thinking, yeah, I wouldn't mind more Doctor Who like this, but maybe I'm jumping ahead to my conclusion, so I'll, I'll shut up now. Okay. One thing that did stand out for me is a bit of a fault, but it's a fault that Doctor Who shares with a large amount of modern television now, is that even though we'd gone back into history, you had all these Roman soldiers and all these picked villages who frankly could have walked out of a my model catalogue. <laughs> yes. You know, there were some very good looking cast members in this episode and I don't think it's quite realistic that you would have had this group of Romans and Scotsmen, you know, with perfect teeth and well cut hair and you know looking really nice and fit and everything. I thought, look, it it, it is the um the modern TV version of history, but as I say, that's a problem that Doctor Who is, you know, far from unique. In having. Yeah, look, I've got a funny story about that. I'll go off on a tangent. When my brother, my older brother, was in high school in the late 70s and, and early 80s, he had a history teacher who once said, look around at all the historical films, discount that. The best historical films in terms of what people look like back in the day are probably the Monty Python films. <laughs> <laughs> because you know so many historicals just have people with perfect teeth and they look very clean and so on whereas the monty python films have people covered in grime and with horrible teeth and things like this and he, he told my brother's history class that's much more realistic than many of the history films you're actually watching <laughs> yeah look even something like zulu although that's got its faults like you know the occasional wristwatch on the on the zulu warrior <laughs> yes. um you know, at least the British soldiers there do look as though they haven't had a shower for a long time. And you you do get those scenes where the doctor has to go and lance a boil. And, you know, he says, you know, for every bullet wound I treat in Africa, I have to lance three boils. Mm. And you, that, that's a slightly more dirtier, realistic view of history. But, yeah, look, that, that did stand out for me as I'm looking at this very good-looking cast and thinking, oh, this, they're very good to look at. Not very accurate, though. No, it's like the cast of class with uh, someone's taking a texture to their faces. Yeah. But that's modern TV. It is. Um, I want to talk about the Doctor in another area too. We have this utterly bizarre moment at the end where the Doctor's willing to give up everything just to seal that portal. And Dave, I didn't buy that at all. Maybe it was there to underscore how big the threat was, you know, that these things are going to come through and they'll eat the sun and they'll really mess things up. But it, it seemed it wasn't played with a lot of tension or passion. It was a bit flat. And I wasn't buying it at all that the Doctor would do this. Yeah, that was a little bit strange for me because at first I thought he was simply making the point that if he dedicated, say, 200, 300 years of his life, he could then walk out in, you know, six months' time in the real world, so to speak, and have solved the problem and, you know, it, all, it would all be okay because, you know, they, they'd established that Narnia time difference between the inside and the outside that's true so i thought he could sit there and go well this will take a few hundred years to sort out i can give you that time uh it'll only take six months in the real world and it'll all be sorted out then when he started talking about i can go on and i can regenerate and i'm like oh you're putting multiple lifetimes into this mm. couldn't couldn't you just put a rock over it or something yeah and and the fact he was saying to bill you know look the tardis will take you home like he's he seems to have planned this all out. It's almost like he doesn't think he's coming back or has a chance of not coming back or he'll be there for a very long time, even with the time dilation, you know, because he's going to send Bill home in the TARDIS and he's going to sacrifice all his remaining lives, you know, based on this plan he's cooked up in the last few hours. I just didn't buy it at all. It didn't feel right to me at all. And, and it, unfortunately, the story proved it unnecessary because when all the Romans and Carr went into it, now, presumably, even if they spend, well, I don't, I don't know. So you, I, I assume that the, 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 the multidimensional portal doesn't feed and give them drink. So do they, what, fight it until they die of starvation? Or do they fight it until they're hungry, then go out, get some food and go back in? 
<laughs> I don't know. And even if they're doing that, let's 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 say that they're they're able to live their full natural life and live to fifty or sixty or whatever they would have lived to at that stage, and that might take up several hundred years of our time. Then what? Like if the doctor felt it was so necessary that he had to stay there for millennia, aren't we just leaving this as massively unresolved? Because at some point the humans are going to die, and we're back to where we were. Well, it certainly seems that way, because in the modern day, you've got that little girl who can still hear that bloody music on a loop. (laughs) Wouldn't that drive you insane over a few millennia? That's still playing, so apparently this fight is still going on. I mean, that's a very romantic view of it and such, but it seems to be that it's still going on, and when do they all die off? I don't know. It it, it does leave it unresolved. I don't think we're going to be coming back to it anytime soon, but yes, I agree. It, It is unresolved to some degree. And, and let me say, again, watching this just for the enjoyment of it and being carried through by the story, I liked the ending. I liked them going in to sacrifice themselves. I liked the idea that that battle continues on and in modern day it's been dismissed as ghost and everything. And, you know, the way that it tied the, the, the past and the present together, I thought was a really good outcome. A- again, if I wasn't doing this podcast, I don't know that I'd be as critical of it as I am going down into the weeds and really analysing it. And, you know, how many Doctor Who stories can survive that level of critique? Oh, for sure, for sure. And, I mean, just mentioning those Romans there, we didn't get a lot of time with most of them, so their sacrifice at the end maybe didn't tug on my heartstrings as much as it should. It was kind of there with, you know, the Legion stands ready and, you know, they're going in and they're teaming up with the Celts. That was all well done. But it didn't quite have the tug on the heartstrings for me that I thought it was meant to have just because I didn't know them that well when they did sacrifice at the end. Yeah, look, you're right. But by the same token, they'd at least done enough to make you realize that's what you were meant to feel. You know, they'd, they'd been nice to Bill. They'd rescued Bill. They'd saved her. They'd shown a willingness to make peace with the Scots. So I think there was enough good in them that you thought, well, you know, these are people who are the good guys. So I think their sacrifice did work. Yeah, maybe not the uh, the demons they've been painted as throughout the rest of the episode, perhaps. Yeah, and, and so let me make this point now. Had we not had five, six, seven minutes with Missy at the end, could we have had five, six, seven minutes of greater character development for those characters that would have tied this up in a slightly more realistic way or in a way that was more emotionally impactful or whatever? Did, did we lose a bit of that extra character depth because we had to have this coda with Missy. I'll put that out there now. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think you're quite right, because I, I thought, gosh, we've got to the end of this episode quickly, and then that bit with Missy went on and on and on and on, <laughs> and I thought, oh, we have lost a bit of story there. I, I quite agree, because we did have, you know, of course there were some scenes with the Romans, their attitudes towards liking men or women or men and women were, <laughs> were quite realistic, yeah. actually, yeah. and that was a really nice nod, and you know, I'm surprised that it was surprising to Bill, though, because cycling back to last week when I said, did we know Bill was a historian before? <laughs> she seems to be way into the Ninth Legion, but she didn't seem to know that that would be a typical attitude among Romans. So that, hmm, bit of a disconnect there. Let, 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 let's park that, because I want to get back to that Bill, Bill thing. Okay. One of the, in my mind, flaws of modern Doctor Who, and it's it's a personal thing, and it's a minor thing, is that at 42 minutes, you've got to smash through the plot. So you do miss some of those really special character moments that, to me, defined a lot of the best classic Doctor Who stories. In in good new episodes, you, you do get it, and good writers can do it, and in some of the two-parters you get it. But when you've only got 42 minutes of screen time, every moment of that is precious. Every moment you sacrifice of that, I think you lose a little bit of extra depth, a little bit of extra texture, and certainly some extra characterization. So once you take out a large chunk of 42 minutes to have a coda that really isn't part of this story, I think you do sacrifice something. I think had we not had the Missy scene, we could have had more characterization that would have added a greater punch to the emotions of this story. Yeah, and it was a coda that largely trod over ground we'd already sort of trodden over before. There, there was the slight change that, you know, the Doctor knows he could be being fooled and sort of telegraphed that to us as the audience, and that was good to know. Other than that, though, it was kind of like Missy crying and, you know, oh, I feel this way. Mm, okay, yeah, we've seen you do that already. <laughs> yeah, and, and given that the whole next, presumably two episodes, are going to be the Missy-centric story, you, you could have had the ending where you had 
all that we saw on screen, extra character time. You then got to sort of 40 seconds from the closing credits. The crew get back into the TARDIS. Missy's there. Nardle says, oh, my God, what's she doing here? She says, the doctor let me. He turns to the doctor. The doctor says, yes, there's something I want to tell you. Slam on the closing credits. Mm, yes. That would have been great. Yeah, that, and, and that would have set it up. And then you have what we had in Dakota here becomes the cold open for episode 11. Yep. And then you go into the adventure. And that gives us a week of going, hey, has the Doctor decided that she's going to be let free now? Has the Doctor decided she's redeemed? What's, you know, what's going on? What's this all about? I think that, that would have been, to me, more effective because it would have given us a real cliffhanger. It would have left us speculating even further for a week and it wouldn't have sacrificed extra time out of a really good episode. Agreed. Shall we talk, Bill? Well, yeah, look, so I wanted to, to carry on what, what you were saying you're right. I, I thought that it, look, it was it was kind of cool that she wanted to go go back and sort this out. But as you say, she's somebody who's never before shown an interest in history. She's someone who last episode not only hadn't read Robinson Crusoe, but didn't even know who Man Friday was. Mm. And, and as you say, her her broader knowledge of the Romans or or the Scots or any sort of part of this history seemed to be very lacking. So whether it was just she had one incident that she was really fixated on, the way that some people are absolute experts in the sinking of the titanic or absolute experts in you know one particular particular battle or one particular mystery or something like that maybe that was what it was uh but you're right it did seem like a um convenient invention just for this episode yeah maybe like someone who is fascinated by jack the ripper and knows a lot about it but isn't really into serial killers in general perhaps yeah, or, or Victorian history, so they know all about Jack the Ripper, but really know nothing about anything else that happened at that time frame. Yeah, but I agree, you know, it, it has come out of nowhere, as I sort of suggested last week. You know, why couldn't we have had her earlier in this series uh, with some history books in her bedroom, or maybe clutching some history books under her arm as she walks around the uni, or indeed take history classes, <laughs> you know, not physics or whatever she's doing? Why isn't the Doctor teaching history there anyway? So many questions. Yeah, look, I, I guess that they probably didn't think that level of foreshadowing was needed for one story. That That's okay. It, it did seem a bit odd. However, that all said, I think there was a lot of good Bill stuff in here. The opening scene with the Doctor and Bill, I actually really like their relationship there. And I think it's one of the best Doctor-companion relationships we've had, where it really did feel like the teacher and the student. And that, that really good sort of teacher that allows the student to sort of form their own theories – pushes back a little bit, but isn't lecturing them and feeding it all to them. He's letting her go, what, what's your theory? Well, where's the evidence? Well, let's explore that idea rather than just going, you're wrong. Mm. This is why I suggested it felt a bit McCoy to me. And, you know, I was saying, well, I, I know Rona wrote it and she last wrote a McCoy story, so, you know, maybe that's playing on my mind. But the relationship there did seem a bit Doctor and Ace because I think Ace was a bit yep. unique almost in the classic companions in the way she interacted with the Doctor. Did you see anything of the Doctor and Ace perhaps in, in that relationship there? Now that you mention it, yes, that does actually make a lot of sense. And indeed, the way that Bill spoke with such affection for the doctor and his abilities was much like the doctor and ace as well and and i guess i like that I, I like the companion saying the doctor's really good at making himself the boss of people and making himself you know get out of situations rather than he's this wonderful swoony attractive man that i love and he's so <laughs> special and all of that sort of doctor wank that we occasionally get in the new series i like this more traditional relationship and, and and yes it did feel like mccoy and ace but i think it also it, it didn't seem out of character for what we've established and i'm really liking this professor student relationship between the doctor and bill or mentor and telemachus or however you want to put it surrogate father and daughter you know however you want to frame it mm. i i like this better than i've liked possibly any relationship between a doctor and a companion maybe with the exception of season one rose and eccleston uh something else involving bill in this episode the tardis is translating thing was really heavily done at least twice in this episode and i was thinking have we not already had that topic covered i might be a bad fan and i don't pay half as much attention as i should but i thought it had and regardless it was a really strange thing to start hammering home at least twice as i say in this episode which is episode 10 of a new companion series. It was 
did you notice that got hammered a couple of times, the whole translation thing? Look, I did. Y- yes, I thought uh, in, in some ways it could have been a bit heavy-handed, but I kind of took it as being part of the ending, that this idea that once everybody's speaking the same language and can talk to each other, they can work through their problems, and that part of the issue was that, you know, the, the Scots would have been pe- speaking some sort of picked dialect and the Romans obviously speaking Latin, so they couldn't have spoken, they couldn't have had a dialogue, and the moment they could, they could actually start to relate to each other. Mm. I, I don't think it came through quite as it was intended to there, but that's how I took it. Anything else on Bill before we go to Nardol? No, let's go Nardol. All right. Nardol, I thought, was very much the comic relief this week, but in a way that worked. I I kept thinking of your comments last episode, Dave, about Nardol building up to be that secret badass and regressing backwards. I I get all of that, but I quite enjoyed his sort of comedic role here. It made him very distinct, I guess, from what Bill was doing. Yes, I agree. He had some good funny lines. I didn't mind him too much in this episode. The scene, though, where he hasn't bothered to look for Bill, that struck me as being quite a bit of a mark against him. Mm. You know, if if I was traveling with somebody and I was stuck in a cave, potentially injured, and they've gone, barely are there, no, can't see you, I'll sit around the fire and tell stories, (laughs) I'd be pretty pissed off. It's a good point. I mean, maybe they wouldn't let him go to do that, so he was kind of forced to just hang around. Maybe that's a devil's advocate position. Look, look, maybe for the initial first day, perhaps, but by the time that he's, you know, done the C-3PO and he's standing around telling them all war stories, <laughs> you'd think that he had enough relationship there to go, by the way, I need to go find my friend. Like, that, that to me, it was a good... I, I don't know what they were trying to do there. Were they trying to do it... Uh, were they trying to do it as a gag? They didn't really play it as a gag. Mm. Or was it just to make Nardo look like a bit of a selfish prick? Yeah. Because <laughs> that's how he came across to me. Well, maybe that's his uh, secret badassness coming out. <laughs> maybe he yeah. is a prick. <laughs> yeah, or, or just, just, you know, maybe he doesn't care about Bill as much as we thought he did. Yeah, maybe. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if now they're back safely in the TARDIS when they get a quiet moment, Bill goes, so, I was in the cave for two days. Where were you? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. I've jotted down here, there was a real classic series moment with Nardole. They come out of the TARDIS and he says, where are we now? And that's the kind of thing I would write in fanfic when I was about 12, because it seemed like the thing to say in classic era Doctor Who to walk out of the TARDIS, where are we now, Doctor? (laughs) I just made a little note of that. I don't know whether that's Rona Munro thinking of the classic series or what, but... It just took me back to writing fanfic when I was a kid. That that whole, you know, very simplistic, where are we now, allowing the Doctor to describe what is going on. It seems we've gotten away from that in modern Who. Yeah, look, that's true. But I guess there's also a sense here that the Doctor and Bill know exactly what's going on and they've decided to go back here and Nardo's kind of along for the ride and hasn't been kept in that loop. Mm. I wonder if this is Rona Munro writing Nardle based on a brief that she was given really before his character developed. So she's still writing him as that sort of servature person who's not really a companion. He's the guy that's there to make the coffee. So he isn't in the loop and he's not being a companion and he's not doing all that stuff. He's he's kind of just there to stand there, hold the doctor's coat and make quips. Yeah. Which, if, if you look at where he was in the pilot, that would be a very valid characterization, but we've moved on nine episodes from there. Which, which again comes back to what we discussed last time about whether there has been the right level of script editor style uh, oversight of his character in this story or in this season. Yeah, true, true. And and that could come back to the fact as I think we've said this every episode, he wasn't meant to be in every episode and then got written into them. So maybe he was uh, wedged in at at times a bit more successfully than others, perhaps. I don't know. Mm. Now, Rob, I've got to ask you, did you spot the Star Wars actor? Did I spot the Star Wars actor? Oh, no. Oh, just off the top of my head after one hot take, no. Ah, okay. So the Roman Lucius, played by Brian Vernal. Yes. Think Force Awakens. Right. They're on the Millennium Falcon. Yes. And the group of mercenaries come to take Han Solo away. Yes. He was the lead mercenary. Was he really? He was. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, and that makes sense because they got a lot of British actors in for uh, Force Awakens being filmed over there, of course. 
Yeah, and it was just I, I spent sort of half an episode going, I know this guy, I've seen this guy, and yeah, I did look had to look it up and find out exactly who he was. But um, yeah, he was in the Force Awakens. Okay, that was that w- very weirdly named gang Kanji Club, as I remember. That's the one. The That's Kanji the one. Club people. Okay, very good, very good. The Celts. Let's rattle through this. I thought they were really well done. Like the Romans, we didn't get to know a lot of them as real people, but that first sighting of Car. I thought was fantastic. She sees Bill, screams this unearthly scream, and she's just going to do her in. She's got the the dual weapons out, and she's mm, going to mm. kill her. And I thought, yes, we should do that more often in Doctor Who. So so many times meetings seem to be, oh, I've bumped into you. Hello, how are you? And there's a conversation, and it's more scripted and more talky. This was just like, ah, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> it, 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 yeah, I thought it was absolutely realistic it was absolutely well done it it reminds me of a line from an episode of blake seven when they arrive and they see that there's the signs that a battle's just occurred and uh blake says we're going to be very careful here because uh soldiers fresh from a battle tend to be rather trigger happy mm. and i thought that's exactly the case here if you're have just been fighting for your life against a roman legion and suddenly someone you don't know comes along you're not going to stop and go, oh, I wonder where you are. You're just going to go, right, there's another one, let's go. Yeah. And, of course, she's been doing some sort of little ceremony too, which might be quite personal to her, and to be interrupted yeah. has set her off as well. But I, I loved that, you know. I was going to say, we got to know one of the other blokes pretty well from the from that group, but other than that, we didn't really get to, to get into them too much. No. And, and, again, it comes back to if we'd had a few more minutes available we could have had a scene with them similar to the scene that we had with Bill on the Romans where she got to talk about, you know, sexuality and uh, their background and a little bit, and, and, you know, that, that, that ability to get to know them a little bit better. I think that, that they really lacked that sort of a scene, which was a shame. But I, I did, you know, like the way that they were done here. They were There was an attempt to make them actually like the Scots of the time without being patronising or you know, dare I say, Braveheart-style ridiculous. Mm, yeah, now that's true. And, and I thought they were quite well done. Although I must say, I only remember Carr's name because of that weird, the crows remembering thing at the end and crows saying car, car. And why did the crows used to say master and doctor before that? I don't know. Um, I don't know if that's going to actually pay off or whether that'll just go by the wayside now. But yeah, that's how I remembered her name through car, car. Yeah, look, that that was all a little bit weird, but it's one of those moments when I think, look, at the age of 30-something, I find that weird. If I was seven, that would have been so cool. Yeah, true. You know, this this idea that, oh, that's why crows do that. That's really cool. Yeah, I think that was one for the, for the younger viewer, and fair enough. Before we get on to Word of the Week, I just want to talk about the reality of the Legio Nona Hispana, or the Spanish Ninth Legion. Yes, please do. This um, this story took the very um, romanticised view. I think there was a book that came out in the 50s that sort of took this concept that this legion had been wiped out around 108 CE up in Scotland. And, and the reasoning for that is it just doesn't, or hadn't popped up in subsequent Roman records. But I hate to, to break this to people out there. About 120 CE, there's records of them being in a Roman base in the Netherlands. So... <laughs> <laughs> they, they they moved on from Scotland. They they ended up in the Netherlands. It's still unknown, actually, what happened to them in the end, because when there was some big uh, muster of Roman legions, maybe a hundred years later, they don't appear in that. So we 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 don't actually know what happened to them in the end. But they didn't go missing in Scotland. They they ended up in the Netherlands and probably moved on beyond there as to whether they were disbanded or merged with another legion or destroyed in battle. Who knows. But I guess as a Scot, Rona Munro really likes this idea that they went missing in Scotland and maybe it was the Scots that killed them all and isn't that spectacular? Or maybe it was aliens, but but no. The, the reality is a bit more mundane. Yeah, look, that's fine. It wouldn't be the first Doctor Who story to take a little bit of a romantic view of history. Yeah, exactly right. Okay, words of the week. Uh, I've got mine, you've got yours. Who goes first? All right, well, you went first, so let's hear it. Okay, snug. I thought this was like a pair of Ugg boots. Despite all the holes I've been picking and things I've been saying, I thought this was comfortably firm and warm. It felt like a good, solid, snug sort of Doctor Who story to me. And I did actually quite like it. I think when I pick holes in things, it's because I'm, you know, trying to find reason why I might not like it as much as I do, because I did actually quite like it. Yeah, my word is actually very similar. I went with Keystone 
and that was partly a reflection of the cans that they were building there, and that's where I took my imagery from. But to me, this is a keystone episode. This is the sort of thing that you can write a series around. You've got the Doctor, you've got an adventure, you've got a travelling in time, you've got a monster, you've got some humanity. That, to me, is Doctor Who. Yeah. This episode, to me, is what Doctor Who is. Once you put a few episodes like this into a season, that's the keystone around which you can experiment, around which you can try different things, around which you can do more modern things. But these are the keystone episodes that makes Doctor Who Doctor Who. And I, I really, really love this episode. And I think this is this is what the new series should be doing. Yeah. Now, not not the whole time, not every episode. As I say, even, you know, the, the best seasons of Doctor Who going back many, many years, many, many decades, have your keystone ones around and then, you know, what J&T would call an oddball episode or what Phil Hitchcliffe might call an experimental episode. And it's important to have them in Doctor Who and we should still have them in Doctor Who, but they don't work unless around them you have these keystone ones that keep the flame alive and that, that anchor you in in what Doctor Who is, and I thought this was exactly that sort of episode. Our scores, Dave. I'm going to make you go first. Well, last week I said that it was my favourite episode of the series so far, and I gave it an eight and a half. I think this one was even better, so I've got to go a nine. Nine out of ten for me too. I really enjoyed it. It's where I'd like to see a lot more stories pitched. Uh, It wasn't perfect, of course. You know, there were bits that made me frown a little and thought, oh, that's not quite right. But overall, I thought this was great. Yeah, I actually think this did what last week's episode did, which was a fun adventure with a monster and added a bit of extra idea, a bit of extra plot, you know, just, just that extra depth that gets it a little bit further up. I, I thought this was a really good episode. I'm very comfortable giving it a nine. Excellent. Shall we go to the sports desk? Off we go. are at the sports desk where we talk mvp player of the week and foul of the week dave we're running short of time so i'm going to ask you to jump in straight away with your mvp Uh, i've got to give it to the doctor this time i haven't for quite a few episodes but i thought the doctor was absolutely back to form he had some really good lines he was grumpy and alien without being nasty he showed genuine humanity he was intelligent he was everything i want the doctor to be Look, we've only got a couple more episodes of Peter Capaldi left, and wow, he's really hitting his stride towards the end. I thought it was great. Another go for Peter Capaldi for me. I really love Peter Capaldi too, but my MVP will go to Rona Munro. I thought we were going to get a snap here, Dave. Welcome back, Rona. Don't go missing for another 28 years or whatever it's been. Yeah, no, that's really uh, equally fair. I could quite easily have um, gone with Rona as well, so yeah. Excellent. Your play of the week, Dave. My play of the week I'm going to give to a slightly extended scene that goes from the Doctor escaping from the Scots, where he was able to, first of all, assert his authority via talking. Then he did the trick with the popcorn to get away, and he had the whole line, I'm just about to ask you to um, uh, look bewildered or worried while I you know, escape, whatever the actual line was. And then it leads in that scene where he discovers the interdimensional, pan-dimensional time portal, whatever it was. And I just thought, this is so Doctor Who. Mm, yeah. The Doctor getting his way out of a situation, not with violence, but with being clever and with words, with personality. And then the mystery of he walks into a, you know, several thousand year old Scottish can and there's a there's a dimensional portal there that he steps into and it looked good and it felt good. And I, I just thought that couple of minutes between those two scenes summed up why this was such a good episode. And it's not blow me away play of the day it's not oh wow play of the day it's just this is really good doctor who play of the day yeah yeah i completely agree with that but it's not a snap because i'm going to go with the uh the picks and the romans teaming up to block the portal as i've said earlier i I didn't feel particularly sad or invested in the individuals themselves but i liked the symbolism and i I liked the moment uh that it happened um it seemed to be the only way to really end this uh this story and i i really enjoyed that yeah and i think both those moments do show that you don't need to have big overly emotional murray gold cords swelling moments in doctor who to be awesome you just need to be good yeah yeah exactly right how about your foul of the week dave look as, as i've highlighted i had to give it to the coda with missy not because i thought missy was bad i actually thought it was quite a good performance um i, I do think the doctor's being stupid but We'll come to that probably next episode. But I just think that 
what we got in that coda was not worth sacrificing a bit more character development for in the early episode. And, and like I said, I think it could have been done better. So that's my foul. Okay, my foul I've already covered, so I won't go into great detail, but the Doctor willing to sacrifice himself, possibly all his regeneration, sending Bill home, it, it just seemed like a very weird sort of resolution that he'd come up with. Yeah, that's that's fair as well. All right, let's wrap up now. We've got some listener messages. So the first one comes from Ezra Penny, or Ezpen for short, and they've sent us a little note about last week's episode, The Empress of Mars, and they say, Hi guys, some people, including me, have said that this episode couldn't be any more Mark Gaddis if Mark Gaddis had directed and edited it and played every character who were wearing Mark Gaddis masks and doing Mark Gaddis impressions. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fair, actually. Yeah, I think that's fair. That This this was peak Mark Gattis last week, and uh, I think that's why we gave him some prizes. Peak Gattis. All right. I've got one here from uh, Paul Schoon, sometimes co-host of the Doctor Who Show. He's written to us at hello at thedoctorwhoshow.net. He says, hi, Robin, Dave. In last week's episode, you raised a very good question about the script editor's input on the modern series. I can shed some light on this. Oh, excellent. In the classic era, the script editor was a senior member of the production team. It was the script editor's responsibility to shape the season's narrative, guide the writers and make edits and revisions. If a script wasn't working out, sometimes it was necessary for the script editor to rewrite the story. In modern Doctor Who, the title of script editor exists and appears in the credits, and that's something we mentioned last week, Dave, but the job description has changed. The role has much less seniority and responsibility and is more clerical than editorial. The shaping of the season, guiding of the writers and the rewriting is performed by the series head writer, currently Stephen Moffat, whose job title is executive producer, but is sometimes informally referred to as the showrunner, a term borrowed from American television production. Most writers who work on modern Doctor Who do so in the knowledge that the head writer will sometimes, if necessary, perform fairly extensive rewrites on their stories. But this raises the question of who edits the editor. When Stephen Moffat or Russell T. Davis before him writes a script, it seems that no one is tasked with editing or revising their work. Thanks for that, Paul. And Dave, you got any thoughts on that? Look, I have, but I think they're quite extensive and they're quite overarching, so I might save them for our final review when we uh, look back at the whole season. Okay, excellent. But but uh, yeah, thanks for Paul for you know clarifying that, and I think that's going to be an ongoing topic for the next few weeks. Mm, indeed. Okay, quickly into Ark Watch. I think it's got to be the Master. He's popped up in that trailer, and he's got the little beard that I've been talking about every episode. It seems for the past eight or nine weeks, he looks pretty good. Yeah, and he also look. We only saw him after a couple of words, but they did seem to be quite manic and quite. Uh, unreformed. You know, there was speculation that the John Sim Master could be the one who went to Gallifrey having sacrificed his life to do whatever it was that happened at the end of that episode that was best forgotten. Uh, <laughs> so this this didn't, to me, seem like a reformed master. So I think we're going to get manic, crazy, evil John Sim. Uh, and, of course, we also saw not just the Cybermen, but the Doctor calls them the Mondasian Cybermen. And the, the readout on one of those wonders said that the planet was called Mondas. Yes. Yes, very excited about that. But we'll get to next week in a moment. Before then, fan watch. I think it's got to be the return of Rona Munro. And where has she been? Because she's so good. Yeah, absolutely. I think there'd be a lot of talk about that. And I think that all the speculation about the Master and Missy and the Cybermen, let's face it, it's only a week away now, guys, so there'll be a lot of last-minute, you know, place your bets on what's going to happen, happening, I think. Exactly. So next week we have an episode called World Enough and Time. The first time I saw that title, Dave, I thought they were the names of the last two episodes. One was called World Enough and one was called Time, but the episode is actually called World Enough and Time. Uh, it's written by Stephen Moffat, directed by Rachel Talalay. And the official blurb is, Friendship drives the Doctor into the rashest decision of his life. Trapped on a giant spaceship caught in the event horizon of a black hole, he witnesses the death of someone he is pledged to protect. Is there any way he can redeem his mistake? Are events already out of control for once? Time is the Time Lord's enemy. Bum, bum, bum. Yes, fair enough. <laughs> Do you know, talking about John Sim a moment ago, I think he's about to be cybernized. I've got a feeling those people in the hospital gowns are about to be cybernized. I've got a feeling this is a cyber ship. 
And one of the funny things about it in the latest DWM is Stephen Moffat said his son gave him the idea to do a ship where time is different at one end of the ship to the other. Um, but then after they made the episode, he said to his dad, I think I might have got the math wrong. <laughs> So next week could be based on some dodgy mathematics, but it seems pretty exciting. Yeah, look, I'm very curious as to what happens next week. Uh, you know, we've been building up to this for a while. I, I will confess that in the modern day, every time I see a line in a trailer or a blurb that says he witnesses the death of someone he is pledged to protect, I'm like, yeah, really? That's just that's just trailer bait, isn't it? Mm. You know, it's it's going to be I don't know. I, I don't know. I know that trailers build these things up to, and they can often be damp squibs, so I'm not going to get excited about, oh, my God, who's going to die? It's like, who knows? It could be a big death, and if it is, I'll be shocked. I'll be amazed and I'll be stunned. And if it's just trailer bait, I don't want to be disappointed. Well, we've long said that Bill might be a one-series companion. Is Bill going to die, or is the Doctor pledged to protect Missy? Can we read that into things? Um, or is it just someone he meets during the adventure and says, I'll protect you, like a Linda with a Y type, and uh, they die? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I don't think we can take too much out of something that a publicist has written. <laughs> True. Well, with that, Dave, I think we can draw a line under the Eaters of Light, and uh, I'm going to see you next week, I guess, to discuss World Enough and Time. Yep, the series is on a roll now, so let's see if that continues next week. I'm looking forward to it. Last two episodes. See you then. Bye. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash The DW Show is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.